0: I never heard such a terrific roar of machine gun fire. It was awful and sounded like the cataract at Niagara Falls. To think of human bodies facing such blasts and such sheets of flying lead. It is a wonder that any of these men lived to enter that town. Had it not been for the mist, most of them must have been knocked down. Major Harry Parkin, 316th Infantry Regiment, Seventy ninth Lorraine Cross Division, Montfaucon, Meurs Argonne, September twenty seventh, nineteen eighteen. Hey, folks. Welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 60, Mers Aragon, Taking Montfaucon. Glad to be back here with you folks. Let's start off with some admin notes. Recently, my friend Chris helped me out with a podcast. He said I could repay him by mentioning him on the show. And well, here we are on the show. So, Let me tell you about Chris. He and I work together, and I greatly respect him for his professionalism and his dedication to education. He's well-read, and he's an innovative teacher who continually thinks outside of the box. Now, that's one side of Chris. Chris is also sarcastic and more than a wee bit on the cynical side of things. Recently, I told him that I've been recently connecting with several authors and writers in the World War I community on Facebook. Without missing a beat, Chris replied with, so you're connected with what, all 38 of you out there? Ha, ha, ha. Really, it, it is kind of funny because we World War One folks may be a smaller community than the World War II crowd, but nevertheless, we are legion, my friends. And so... That's my friend Chris. There you go, sir. Patreon shoutouts. Carol and James, thank you for becoming patrons of the podcast. Your ongoing support of the podcast is greatly appreciated, and it goes towards keeping the servers running as well as towards new research materials. As patrons, Carol and James have access to episodes at least 24 hours before they are released on iTunes, as well as access to episodes not yet released. They will also have access to transcripts and bibliographies for every episode. If ongoing financial support for the BFWWP sounds like your idea of a good thing, check us out in the episode links, www.patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. Many thanks to listener Neil for his generous and ongoing donation as well. Thank you, sir. You are also helping the podcast immensely, and it is greatly appreciated. Remember, folks, patronage and donations are excellent and help the podcast a great deal. However, if you're not able to do so, you can still help out the BFWWP. Give us a review on iTunes. Star the podcast with your phones using the podcast app or write a short review on what you think of the show. Reviews definitely help us get on the field for the huge podcast group photo, and with ever more reviews, we get closer and closer to the front of the podcaster's group photo, where you can actually point and say, Hey, look, there we are. All right. So, before the release of this episode, there was a short announcement episode that I made with author and number one lost battalion, historian Robert Laplander, and I'm going to mention it here as well because spots are going fast. So, Mr. Laplander and I have announced Lost Battalion Tours, where he and I will lead a group of 14 guests on a one-week tour of the MERS Argonne. Our inaugural tour will be an eight-day trip to the Argonne region, August 8th through 15th, 2020. Those of you who have traveled with Robert in the Argonne before. No, this is no sightseeing bus trip. This is down in the dirt where it happened stuff. And now you can join us for a trip you won't soon forget. You will stay in the Argonne at a small French hotel as part of your Argonne immersion experience. You'll see all the important spots concerning the battle, including a first-hand tour of the whole story of the Lost Battalion with the number one Lost Battalion guy in the world. On top of that, each tour can be tailored to fit almost any special request visit by guests. Have a grandfather who served in the 32nd Red Arrow Division or a great uncle who was in the 79th Lorraine Cross Division. We'll craft our days so that we visit key points where your ancestors served on the battlefield. And all of this is for a one-time all-inclusive price of just $1,200 U.S. dollars per single guest or $1,000 per guest in groups of two or more. Please note, this price does not include airfare. On airfare, prices there remain very reasonable for U.S. flights into Paris' CDG airport. And if you don't mind a stop or two, prices are even better. Space is limited to just 14 guests, though, so don't wait. Contact Robert J. Laplander or myself for more details. More information is coming soon, so stay tuned. But if you've been thinking that you'd like to experience the AEF in France, this is your chance. This makes a fabulous Christmas gift at a very affordable price that your significant other will treasure forever. Or you can just give it to yourself. So don't miss out. Contact us today and join us. We are along the road parallel 276.4, waiting for you. Really, folks, I think it's going to be a great time. Okay, now to the front line. Let's set our sights on the center of the American First Army's attack front, where the Fifth Corps was going for the imposing butte that is Montfaucon. Going back briefly to episode 53, Fifth Corps' task. on the morning of September 26th, 1918, was to take Montfaucon Hill and other high ground along the German Etzel Gieselherstellung, the German second defense position. The 1,100-foot hill dominates the land around it for several kilometers all around, and the German regiment on it was pledged to defend it to the last. The hill had been so built up with trenches, bunkers, dugouts, and machine gun nests that the Germans had dubbed it Kleines Gibraltar, or Little Gibraltar. The main task of taking Montfaucon fell to the raw 79th Division, with direct assistance from the slightly more experienced 37th Buckeye Division on its left. As discussed in episode 53, to the right of the 79th was the Veteran 4th Division, which was also to assist in the capture of Montfaucon. But 4th Division was assigned to the 3rd Corps, which made already difficult communications and command and control issues even more difficult. The main objective that needed to be seized on the first day of the attack sat divided between two Army Corps. On the 26th, the 79th had attacked but had run into stiff resistance to its front. On the division's left front, The 313th Infantry had been slaughtered in the Gulf de Malancourt, a cleared field that was covered from three sides by German machine guns. After a failed attack, doughboys of the 313th and 316th Regiments had finally pushed through the open and body-strewn field and on into the Bois de Cuisy with the help of French tanks. The 313th had ended the day at the northern edge of the wood, about a kilometer south of Montfaucon itself. On the division's right front, the 314th and 315th Infantry Regiments had pushed past the shattered ruins of Malancourt Village until they, too, were stopped by heavy German machine gun fire from high ground a half mile north. Montfaucon had not fallen on the first day, even though General John Pershing raged for his units to keep attacking. West of Montfaucon, the 37th Buckeye Division, a unit made up of federalized Ohio National Guard troops, attacked with the objective of clearing the ground west of the hill and then pushing on all the way to the village of romagna sous montfaucon and the heights it sits on. The doughboys of the 37th advanced, clearing the Bois de Montfaucon ahead of them and aiming for the village of Ivoire. Ivoire sits on the same ridge, that the villages of Epinonville and Eclefontaine sit on, and as you'll remember, these latter villages were being cleared by the 91st division to the left of the Buckeyes. The doughboys of the 37th cleared the wood but ran into heavy fire, and at the end of the 26th had to dig in south of Ivoire. The division's units had pushed ahead five kilometers, but it had no contact with the 91st on the left and it pushed out patrols to make contact with the 79th on the right. Some of these patrols, in the rainy dark, made their way all the way up to the top of Montfaucon before they discovered they weren't alone on the summit. To the east of Montfaucon, the 4th Division had pushed far past the hill and ended the 26th dug in south of the village of Nantiwa, and on the northern edge of the Bois de Sessage. This led to two lost opportunities where the 4th Division could have greatly assisted the 79th in taking Montfaucon on the first day of the offensive. To recall, the orders from 1st Army were for the 4th Division to assist the 79th by pushing past Montfaucon and then turning west to cut it off from the rest of the German line. This was how Major General Kuhn, the commander of the 79th, received and interpreted the orders. This wasn't, however, how Lieutenant General Robert Lee Bullard's 3rd Corps received and interpreted the directive. 4th Division Commander Major General John L. Hines instructed his officers that they would be helping their neighboring division in the, quote, reduction of Montfaucon, but only within our own area, unquote. In the rush and confusion, of the secret preparations for the upcoming and massive undertaking, no one cross-checked their orders. The battle-tested division, one of the most experienced ones on the American side that day, launched itself at the German lines and punched through. It never turned west, though, although the 79th was waiting. To be clear, strict orders had gone out stating that divisional boundaries were lines in the battlefield that were not to be crossed and they were strict. Then-Captain Harry Truman of the 35th Division was threatened with court-martial when it was discovered he'd fired his 75mm guns from his sector into that of the neighboring 28th Division. The AEF leadership worried that units crossing divisional sectors would open themselves up to friendly fire and even more loss of command and control, so it's understandable. AEF Commander-in-Chief General Pershing and his staff were working to have their troops advance in a generally straight direction in order to keep things simple for these largely untested and raw units. So the 79th and 4th Divisions advanced that day, each with the same orders, but each with their own interpretations of those orders. The 4th Division lost its first opportunity in helping with the capture of Montfaucon when its 1st Battalion, 39th Infantry, mistakenly crossed into the 79th Sector and seized the lightly defended Bois de Tuileries on the Butte's eastern slope. At that moment, Major Roy Winton and his doughboys captured 100 Germans and found themselves behind the enemy's line at Montfaucon. With the element of surprise, it has been argued that Winton should have pushed his men up the hill and taken it from the then-rattled German defenders. Realizing, though, that he was way out of boundaries, Major Winton pulled his men back with his prisoners and quickly ran back into his sector. Of course, he was later thoroughly chewed out for not taking advantage of the situation on Montfaucon, but for getting lost and not advancing north, like everyone else. The Bois de Tuileries was later reoccupied by the Germans. 4th Division's supporting 8th Brigade commander, Brigadier General Ewing Booth, just a short time later saw the situation for what it was at Montfaucon. He saw that the 79th to his left were pinned down, but that they were also tying down most of the enemy's currently available forces. Now was the time to strike, to envelop Montfaucon and cut it off. Booth used the chain of command and requested permission to cross division sectors. It took hours in the chaotic combat conditions, but Booth later received approval to conduct the encirclement from 3rd Corps headquarters. He received the go-ahead late in the day on the 26th, but began to put his plan in motion. Major General Kuhn was made aware of the situation and even sent out orders for his units to sit tight to avoid confusion. However, In the late evening, a new order came down from Corps, stop the encirclement operation, and continue pushing north instead. Orders had come down from 1st Army demanding that the 3rd Corps continue advancing north while covering its left flank. It is believed that 3rd Corps' chief of staff, a pretentious and micromanaging man named Brigadier General Alfred Bjornstad, was the person who rescinded the encirclement order. Curiously, he had been the same man who had approved that order earlier that day. There is also the belief that the lack of assistance was deliberate, and this is the premise of William Walker's recent book, Betrayal at Little Gibraltar. In the book, Mr. Walker argues that Lieutenant General Robert Lee Bullard, 3rd Corps commander and a hard charger looking for a command of the forming American 2nd Army, deliberately withheld assistance for the beleaguered 79th Division. Bullard did this in order to hurt 5th Corps commander Major General George Cameron's chances of competing for the Army command. So, as the Doughboys dug in for the wet and raw night on the 26th, the Germans pushed more troops into the Montfaucon sector. Both opportunities to smash in and seize the imposing hill melted away into history, and they were never to return. Behind the soldiers and the front line on which they huddled against the cold rain, Pershing was manic about his officers continuing their attacks at all costs. The AEF commander put out an order that any commander found not doing his utmost to push his men forward at all costs would be relieved on the spot. 5th Corps taking its directives from 1st Army and Pershing, issued orders that the advance was to be continued with all possible haste and with disregard for flanks. The 91st, 37th, and 79th Divisions from west to east were to attack and advance. We know of the 91st operations as we covered them last episode. The 27th of September promised to be another rainy and raw day in the Meuse region, but there was nothing to be done about that. West of Montfaucon, the doughboys of the 37th Buckeye Division pushed off towards the village of Ivoire again. The village had eluded capture the day before, but today it had to fall. Once the ruins of that village were secured, the next objective was Bunteville, seven miles to the north. Private Ray Johnson... Of the 145th Infantry crossed two low ridge lines with his machine gun company. On the second ridge, the doughboys came across two 155-millimeter guns abandoned by the enemy. Nearby were wicker baskets full of shells. The Americans quickly turned the guns around and began lobbing shells at the Germans' 157th Infantry Regiment, the unit that faced the Buckeyes' advance that day. Johnson and his battalion then continued advancing. As written in his memoir, Heaven, Hell, or Hoboken. Quote, we now mounted the third ridge, which was covered by orchards on the near side. The division's right flank was now storming Montfaucon. Emerging from the orchards, we found ourselves upon a bare, flat crest or plain, and up against an extensive system of trenches and barbed wire entanglements, many of which were twenty yards in width. Beyond lay more such defenses. Through these, we cut our way with considerable difficulty, harassed by well-directed shell fire and spraying shrapnel, and moved on across the open plateau for half a kilometer. Here we were confronted by a shallow valley dominated by another rise in the land beyond. Our company was supporting the first wave of infantry, and, following a few yards behind them, we descended the bare slope. Suddenly, hell broke loose from three sides. Machine guns opened up on us from both flanks and front. Whiz-bangs exploded amongst us. Trench mortars, mini flying pigs, and big HEs descended upon us with terrifying crashes, and rifle fire augmented the extreme danger of our predicament. Everywhere in that little valley, our boys were seeking cover. In the shell holes, behind logs and knolls, and in the sparse brush. To remain standing meant almost certain death. Dozens were almost literally riddled with bullets. To hug the earth was only a shade safer because of the countless falling shells. Men running for cover toppled down in their tracks. Others were stricken where they lay by flying shrapnel and shell fragments. Many more were blown to bits by direct hits from big shells or killed by concussion. The valley was rapidly becoming a shambles." Under the leadership of a Lieutenant John Tilden. Private Johnson and the others in his unit slowly made their way to the top of the Third Ridge. There, they set up 12 Vickers machine guns and began putting out a wall of lead towards the Germans on the next rise of ground. Quote, "'Over the heads of our helplessly trapped infantry, we directed a sustained, concentrated fire. 12 guns spat out bullets at the rate of nearly 600 per minute and with marvelous effect.' The Germans were driven from their vantage place and began to flee in disordered retreat over the opposite hill. Our fire cut great swaths among them. We could see them struggling and scrambling to escape, throwing away rifles, helmets, and packs as they went. They were cut down, ten or fifteen at a time. Our gunners could plainly see the effect of our fire and directed it accordingly. Four minutes of steady firing cleared the hill of the enemy and silenced his machine guns thus enabling our comrades of the infantry to escape from the valley. It also drew the attention of the enemy artillery to us, and we began to get all their fire. That is ever the fate of machine gunners." As the infantry scrambled out of the valley, French tanks showed up to support the attack. They were, of course, late to the show, and their main success was in drawing German fire away from Johnson and his machine gunners. The tanks... Five of them were knocked out by German artillery within three minutes, Johnson later wrote. Ivory Village fell later that day, and the 37th could push no further forward. Despite the heavy combat and casualties amongst the men of the 37th Division, there were also moments of great heroism. One of these moments came when 2nd Lieutenant Albert Basil rushed to the aid of a wounded platoon member, Upon hearing that a squad leader of his platoon, a man named Sterling Ryan, had been severely wounded while attempting to capture an enemy machine gun nest about 200 yards in advance of the assault line and somewhat to the right, 2nd Lt. Basil requested permission to go to the rescue of the wounded corporal. After thrice repeating his request and permission having been reluctantly given due to the heavy artillery, rifle, and machine gun fire, and heavy deluge of gas in which the company was at the time. Accompanied by a volunteer, he worked his way forward and, reaching the wounded man, placed him upon his shoulders and was instantly killed by enemy fire, unquote. Second Lieutenant Basil's soldiers later found him, quote, lying on his back with both his arms around the corporal, whose body lay across that of his friend, unquote. Albert Basil Was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor in 1922, and his remains were brought back to Choyahoga County in Ohio, his home. In the 79th Division sector, facing Montfaucon itself and just to its east, battalion and regimental leaders were struggling to organize their respective units after the previous day's combat and slaughter. Major General Kuhn could not reach his two brigade commanders to tell them he had reorganized the brigades on paper to be side-by-side side instead of one behind the other. The brigades side-by-side would allow for the brigade commanders, wherever they were right now, to control smaller sections of the front and have reserve battalions readily behind the assault units. Unable to contact his brigadier generals, Kuhn and some of his staff rode out Into the battlefield on horses. Finding his now right front brigade, the 158th, not preparing to launch attacks he had ordered hours before, Kuhn located Brigadier General Robert Noble standing in a trench. Towering over him on the parapet, the crisp and clean cut Kuhn's words cut through the air like a blade. General Noble. By the virtue of the office I hold, I hereby relieve you of command. It was Coon's ass, or it was Noble's, and Kuhn knew who was going to go down. Noble was stripped of his wartime rank and shipped back home to an ignominious retirement. Pershing's orders were no joke. If you hesitated or dithered on following attack orders, you were finished. Period. Major General Kuhn then put Colonel William Ulry, commander of the 314th Infantry, in charge of the Ad Hoc Brigade. On the other side of the battle line, the German Army's Mass Group West was steadily bringing in more reinforcements, as well as units that had been pulled back. Already, General Max von Golwitz was ordering artillery he'd sent back to turn around and return to the battlefield. He was weathering the crisis, and his army would too. Facing the U.S. 37th, 79th, and 4th Divisions were four understrength German infantry regiments. Infanterie, Regiment 157 faced the Buckeyes west of Montfaucon, while the 450th Infantry and Grenadier Regiment 11 faced the 79th. The 11th Grenadiers held the hill itself, and to their east, the 66th Reserve Infantry faced the American 4th Division. Each German regiment numbered around 1,000 men each, far below where they should have been. German defenses were thin, and a concerted push could break through their lines. At the northern edge of the Bois de Cuissy, south of Montfaucon, the exhausted, soaked, and shivering doughboys of the 313th Infantry rose to new attack orders, but no food or water Any water to be had came from shell holes with bugs in them. It was reasoned that shell hole water that had live bugs in it must be free of chemical agents, so the men drank what they could. Food was stuck in the hopelessly gnarled traffic far behind the men. As French tanks moved up and the American soldiers readied themselves for the attack, American crewed 9.2-inch guns from the 57th Field Artillery Brigade sent monster shells hurtling towards the ruins on top of the 1,100-foot hill facing them. Colonel Claude Sweezy couldn't properly give the order to attack. Keyed up and stressed out from battle the day before, his stuttering was getting the best of him. When it was time, he raised his arm and brought it down like a sword thrust. His men were off. Bayonet fixed rifles at the ready and disappearing into the morning mist behind the French tanks. Within seconds, machine gun fire ripped the air apart even as the guns continued pounding away. Ready as the support unit, Major Harry Parkin heard the tremendous roar of battle as his fellow Americans advanced ahead of him. Up ahead, the doughboys of the 313th ducked to avoid the enemy machine gun fire, and small groups fired back as others rushed up a short distance before taking their turn to fire. It was cover and move and the doughboys were quickly adapting to the modern battlefield. German artillery began crashing into the open field south of Montfaucon. It was coming from the Argonne Forest to the west and from Hill 378 on the other side of the Meuse to the east. Shortly after the men of the 313th set off, Major Parkin was ordered to lead his battalion out to support the assault. He led his men out into impacting shellfire writing later that, quote, I would not have any of my men ever say that I took shelter from shellfire and ordered them to remain out in the open, unquote. That quote comes to us thanks to William Walker's book, Betrayal at Little Gibraltar. The shells rained down as the doughboys rushed up the hill under terrible machine gun fire. The Germans were soaking the southern slope of the hill with high explosive and gas, making for nightmarish combat conditions. With the gas shells, chemical irritants made it hard to get or keep the masks on. Then the Germans rained down phosgene, which killed everything that didn't wear protection. Doughboys collapsed as bullets tore into their bodies, or were knocked down as artillery splinters split them open. Tanks clawed their way up the hill as the hill itself rocked from the iron rain plowing its surface. The doughboys of the 313th slogged their way up Montfaucon and the hardest part of the fight occurred at the village cemetery. The cemetery is located in largely the same place today, southeast of the ruins of Montfaucon Church and the American Memorial Tower. In here, ancient tombs became machine gun nests that had to be cleaned out by, as then-Major Charles Dupuy put it, quote, bayonet and rifle butt, the pistol and the trench knife, unquote. The fighting was ugly and frequently merciless. To the southeast of Montfaucon, doughboys of the 314th Infantry prepared themselves for an assault through the German lines and the retaking of Bois de la Tuilerie. The small wood sat at the bottom of the eastern slope of the hill, and it had been reoccupied by the enemy the evening before. Arthur Joel was a captain in the infantry and the commander of Company F of the 314th. He and his men held their hard-won line in a, quote, winding trench that was most miserable. There was a steady cold drizzle of rain and intermittent sweeps of enemy sniper fire. In walking along the trench, it was necessary to step over or walk on the bodies of numerous wearers of the greenish-gray German uniform, with here and there an occasional American doughboy." Unquote. In this trench, waiting to go over the top, Captain Joel saw something that profoundly affected him. Seasoned readers of the Murr's aragon campaign will likely have heard of or read this quote before, but there is something about a man noting his enemy's humanity. Joel looked, and quote, on the upturned face of a young German, about 16 years of age, an expression with something of the puzzle of da Vinci's Mona Lisa. The innocent, childlike, questioning wonderment seemed to indicate that he had left this life puzzled as to what it was all about, unquote. Joel was absorbing everything around him as he and his men got out of the trench and set off towards the German lines. With the buzz of tanks and aeroplane motors and the bursts of high explosive and shrapnel, he wrote later, the regiment started ahead in one of the most exciting fights of its history. It was an inspiring sight to see wave after wave of infantry following the advancing tanks. And the other troops and small groups coming behind and on the flanks, and to watch the shrapnel and high explosive shells bursting among the lines and over the heads of the khaki-clad files. Beyond the crest of the hill, big things immediately began to happen. The storm of H.E.s and G.I. cans, high explosive, increased in intensity. Gas clouds became a great deal more concentrated. And the whining and snapping machine gun and sniper bullets added to the toll of casualties. One big HE, probably a 210, knocked the captain to the ground, kicked the shaved tail lieutenant sideways, and made casualties with Sergeant Connolly, one of the corporals, and an orderly. Gas masks had to be donned several times. Sneezing, choking, and lacrimal varieties made one cough, shed tears, and sneeze at the same time. These gas concentrations might not be very dangerous, but it was at least exasperating to try and keep on a mask under such conditions. First aid, first aid, gas, masks on, break up, deploy more, Corporal, keep a part in advance. These are but a few of the calls and commands one could hear between explosions. Overhead was the pat-pat-pat of bullets in an arrow battle. Close by were the peculiar whines sharp cracks, and snapping stick sounds of the rifle and machine gun shower. Here and there on the battlefield, but generally not close, were the thunderous crashes of HE and the noise of falling debris and screeching shrapnel. The doughboys of the three hundred fourteenth stormed through the Oeuvre du Dumont. Casualties were heavy as the men charged forward. The troops pushed on into the Bois de la Tuilerie, with the men of the three hundred fifteenth close behind. The wood had to be cleared out of Germans again, and there followed a bloody slog that saw the woods secured by the Americans again. As soon as doughboys were spotted at the woods' northern edge, the Germans launched a, quote, terrific barrage of overhead shrapnel which made things unbearable, unquote. The men had to pull back out of the wood yet again. The doughboys were so keyed up that in some instances madness took over. Sergeant Maximilian Boll relayed such a moment that was quoted in William Walker's betrayal at Little Gibraltar. Quote, we came down a slight slope on the side of which a heavy German gun emplacement seemed to have been cut. I see on the farther side a number of German soldiers lying side by side, about four of them. They appear to be dead. As I look, one of them lifts an arm as if in a gesture for help Then a series of pistol shots scream out behind me. There, some 10 feet in back of me, is our bugler, Isaac Kevich. He's emptying his revolver at the wounded German who throws up his arm, then rolls to the side on his face. I am dumbstruck. To the right of the 79th Division, troops of the 4th Division launched an attack on Nantiwa at 7 a.m. that morning that ran into the machine gun fire of the 5th Bavarian Reserve Division. German resistance was steadily hardening, and after a gas barrage, the doughboys here pulled back to create a line on Hill 295 and in the edge of the Bois de Setsarge. Behind German lines to the north, General Max von Galwitz checked his maps and saw that the Americans were trying to cut off Montfaucon. There was no use... In holding this hill any longer. To all appearances, von Galwitz said, the Americans endeavored to encircle Montfaucon from both sides in order to pinch it off. The enemy advanced up to Nantiwa. I ordered that Montfaucon be relinquished and a new line established, running from Epinonville by the way of the heights to the north of Nantiwa to Briul, the de stelling position. The 11th Grenadiers the German regiment holding Montfaucon was stunned. From Jean Faxes with their bare hands comes a quote from the German regiment's historian. This order initially shocked the regiment to the core. Instead of ordering the other regiments to resume their positions, the division ordered the 11th Grenadier Regiment to abandon the sector which they had defended with such great sacrifices and in such tenacious battles. When the allotment of a single strong reserve for the right flank would be enough to hold it, and to surrender in the middle of the day when a new attack could be expected at any moment and a thrust into the retreating troops could lead to their utter destruction. But von Golowitz could see the hill was untenable, and he had a larger picture of the unfolding battle available to him. German defenses were crumbling, and he had work to do in order to stave off collapse. He therefore ordered Montfaucon to be given up. The assault on Montfaucon and its flanks paid off. By 11.30 that morning, doughboys of the battle-worn 313th Infantry were swarming on the top of the hill, fighting through the ruins of the nearly obliterated village flashed and flared, but shortly after 1 p.m., Major General Kuhn received a runner's message from Colonel Sweezy, took town of Montfaucon 1155 after considerable fighting in town, many snipers left behind, town shelled to slight extent after our occupation, and moving on to core objective and hope to reach it by 1600 hours. Sweezy, unquote. The ruins of Montfaucon were secured, and in a ruined house on the western side of the hill, a massive periscope was located. The periscope was mounted on a carriage, and within the confines of concrete walls constructed inside the house, the periscope could be extended some 85 feet. In the attic of the building was a map room of the surrounding area, all done to scale, so the scope could be aimed at any point on the map. The observers could be in the basement of the building, or on other floors, and could use a complex system of mirrors to observe the terrain for kilometers around. This was the Crown Prince's observatory, and the legend that Crown Prince Willy had directed the onslaught at Verdun from here was just that, a legend. The Verdun front was too far away for that. It was used instead to watch the south and southwest, from which the Germans expected a French attack throughout the war. The whole scope mechanism was dismantled by the men of the 3rd Division who would relieve the men of the 79th on the 30th of September. More next episode. The Scope eventually made its way to West Point, where in the interwar period it was a popular backdrop for photos. After the Second World War, the Scope apparatus slowly moved into the shadows until it disappeared altogether. It resurfaced in Fort Sill, the home of the U.S. Army's artillery branch, and it is displayed there today. Listener Clark contributed some photos that will be posted on the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com. In the ruins of Montfaucon Church, the American flag was raised. The Germans retaliated by shelling the hilltop, but the Americans were already pushing north. That push will be the subject of our next episode. But the linchpin to the German lines had been taken, or so it was thought. The Americans had seized a key objective French General Philippe Pétain, remember him, said would maybe fall by winter. Not to make this a both sides are wrong argument, but the AEF's commanding staff had also been proven wrong with their demands for a 16-kilometer advance on the first day. From the fields west of the Argonne, through the forest and valleys to the River Meuse itself, the American offensive had set the land on fire. Shelling raged throughout the afternoon and into the night. The Doughboys with the 37th, 79th, and 4th Divisions kept pushing. Next episode, we'll follow them as they continue the advance north of Montfaucon. Questions, comments, or concerns? Please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com. Or get at me on the Twitter at... at WW1 podcast. Check out the BFWP website firstworldwarpodcast.com for some photos and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.